So turn with me to the gospel according to Luke. We're actually going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 is where our text is this morning. Um, Luke, the gospel according to Luke is a historical account of Jesus Christ. Uh, Dr. Luke, it was written by Dr. Luke, who was played an investigator, we learned in chapter 1, wrote down an orderly account of the life, the ministry, the crucifixion, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for someone by the name of Theophilus, maybe a Greek, uh, maybe a Roman, but he's probably the one who funded the investigation, some, some official. We also know that Luke was enabled, empowered, and as what Peter says, carried along by the Holy Spirit to give us this inherent, uh, what actually happened, free from error, an infallible, incapable of error narrative of Jesus Christ, what he, what he taught, where he went, what he did, how people responded to him. We see this, this account uh, is exactly what occurred when he was doing ministry on earth, including his death, including his burial, including his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. And over the past couple of weeks, couple of chapters, Jesus has been driving home what it means to be his disciple, his follower. He spoke of the priority and cost of discipleship. It'll come to a crescendo if you look in chapter 14, verse 26, where he says you must hate your own father and mother, wife, children, brother and sisters, even your own life if you want to be my disciple. You want to come back and hear that message. What is Jesus really talking about there? But his teaching about the priority, the teaching about the cost of discipleship, it was also a challenge to the religious people in his day. Why? Because they think they know the right way. They want to make disciples that follow them. They want to be up front and center. They want to be the limelight, in the limelight, if you will, of community. They wore extravagant robes. They prayed loudly in public. They said, they, they, they said and they taught they know the right way to follow God. And then Jesus comes along and repeatedly and regularly rebukes the religious leaders of the hypocrisy. Larry Robb last week, a pastor elder in process, did a great job in the text before this, uh, pointed out that he said, it is time now for the nation of Israel to repent to turn away from their sins and be saved. And going through Jesus is the only way for that to happen. But time is growing short, end quote. Jesus spoke about judgment. Jesus spoke about coming, and then it would be too late to be saved. Our text before us presents the why of Jesus' judgment by showing that, the, that part of the problem, or some of the root of the problem, really lays in the leaders of Israel, represented here by the Pharisees and the scribes. Once again, our text this morning is a confrontation, a conflict with religious people and Jesus. Not just religious people, but conservative religious people. Say, wait a minute, that's, that's too close to home. Good. Good. Because everyone, me included, need to be reminded regularly of the gospel. It is the gospel that brings about a deep and an abiding humility, not our views. Jesus teaching, preaching, declaring the kingdom of God has come, the king is here. Demonstrating his power, his authority in healing diseased folks, demon-oppressed people, raising the dead. He taught that we ought to be perpetually ready for his coming. He spoke of the continued growth of the kingdom, where there's a place of rest and refuge and shelter. He talks about the kingdom being a narrow door, the way to strive into your, the way to get into you know this door, this narrow door of salvation is to strive into it, to, to enter into, must strive to enter into, into it. 
Not talking about earning your salvation, but truly repenting of your sins, completely and wholeheartedly resting and relying on the cross, the person and work of Jesus and what he did in his finished work, dying for our sins, rising from the dead. Jesus makes it clear that he alone is the way of salvation. We looked at that. That he alone has the authority to forgive sins. That he alone, by his wrath-absorbing substitutionary sacrifice, he is the only mediator between sinful man and a holy God. And if you're a religious, self-righteous religious person, we'll talk about that, and you think, look, I got it all together, you know the way, your moral standing, your obedience to God's law is your ticket into the presence of God, and Jesus comes along and calls you out that you need to repent of your wickedness, turn from your ways, your sinful hypocrisy, and trust and rely upon Christ alone. Listen, there's going to be problems with religious people. And before we judge these Pharisees, we need to relate. This applies to, applies to all of us, and particular religious conservatives, of which I am one. Get quiet in here. Okay. <laughs> now, we wouldn't say out loud, look, I, I'm righteous. I've earned God's salvation. But the way we look down on others, we hold tightly to our methods. The way we secretly think, man, if you're just like me, you wouldn't have the problems you have. Says the same thing. Look, we're right. We know the way. Come follow us. Yeah, it's been a hard week. Two headings, simply two headings. It's not any shorter, it's just as two headings. The Sabbath healing and the humble guest. Number one, the Sabbath healing. Once again, this conflict between Jesus and religious people, because Jesus is healing on the Sabbath day. We've seen this before. Sometimes it was done actually in the synagogue. Here it is at a shared meal. Chapter 4, Jesus heals a man who was demon-possessed, who was actually in the worship center at the synagogue worshiping God with God's people. He's demon-possessed. Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. In chapter 6, Jesus heals another man in the synagogue. If you remember, his right hand was withered. It says that the scribes, that's the lawyers and the Pharisees, religious leaders, watched him, it says, in chapter 6. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Chapter 13, Jesus heals a woman who's bent over, wrong with her back, couldn't, couldn't straighten up. And, and in that healing, it says that the religious leaders became indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. If you remember that, you're like, listen, come on any other day of the week, just don't come on a Sabbath for your healing. The healing today not only happened at someone's residence, but like the other passages we just read, it was a complete setup. Jesus is growing in popularity, yes, but he's also, it's also growing in hostility toward him. Verse 1 sets the tone. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were strictly, excuse me, they were watching him carefully. And behold, underline that, behold, it just so happens to be, a man before him who had dropsy. Now in that day, it was quite normal to have a large gathering on the Sabbath. The meal was, according to Exodus, had to be prepared the day before so they don't work on the Sabbath. And the leaders would get together, the synagogue, and the visiting rabbi would come and join them. 
It's also quite normal if we've seen, or not regular, I wouldn't say normal, but regularly, that Jesus going from town to town, village to village, city to city, he would be invited. But what is astonishing is that Jesus accepts the invitation. Knowing full well that these religious leaders were getting more and more and more hostile, Jesus goes. He goes to this ruler's house. It was part of the Pharisaic party. Uh, some commentators think he was part of the Sanhedrin. It's like the Supreme Court of Israel. Uh, they were the ruling body, 70 men, plus the high priest. Uh, either way, we don't know. This, this Pharisee was obviously a, a leading Pharisee and an important figure in that day. And there's no way... As far as I'm concerned, there is no way that they invited Dropsy Don to come to this elaborate, joyful dinner for any other reason to trap Jesus. Man was suffering from dropsy, uh, an abnormal accumulation of liquid uh, resulting in severe, severe, could be very severe, swollen limbs. Most likely a heart or his liver or his kidneys uh, were causing problems. And you have severe swollen limbs. So, his sickness was obvious to everyone, right? He was sick, it was obvious. He, he was a plant. He was being used. In that day, they believed that if you had dropsy, it was God's judgment. We saw that earlier in other passages. Some ancient Jewish material suggests that it result from sexual sins. In the Roman, uh, Greco-Roman world, dropsy was, was a, uh, they saw it as a consequence of gluttony and as a metaphor for greed and lust. The Pharisees found somebody to put at that feast, knowing Jesus would heal again like he's done on, on, the, on the other Sabbath days. And during this meal, during this conversation at this table, at, at this uh, dinner meal together, Jesus turns around and asks the, the Pharisees and the lawyers, the scribes, something that all of them had on their mind, I'm sure. Is it lawful? You see the man there, Jesus is sitting. Is it lawful, he says, to heal on the Sabbath or not? It was a gotcha question, right? Pharisees love to point out and try to get others to slip up, to fall, and to sin. They want to look righteous. They want to look superior to everybody else. They love to argue. They love for being right. They love to get into fights. We see that all throughout Scripture. We said earlier, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. They're not going to question or try to trap God who created the universe, who gave us the Sabbath into some sort of sin. Right? He's Lord over their silly, stupid, strict, man-made laws and traditions concerning the Sabbath. We talked about on a different sermon. What happens is they make these laws and they completely miss the compassion that's required of them from God. The big issue, of course, is whether you work on the Sabbath. That was the thing that, 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 that was considered work. The Sabbath, as you know, was first instituted by God. God worked, created six days, seventh day, Saturday, God rested. So God set in motion this, this seven-day work week. The end of the week is a day of rest. We did a series on the Ten Commandments. I mentioned this before. We, we talk about what the Sabbath is for believers. You can go there. I don't have time for that. But remember... Religious leaders love to, to put fences upon fences and fences and fences around the, the, the laws of God that are meant for our good, protection, so that it's almost impossible to keep them. It's almost impossible to keep them. You're going to break them. You're going to break some of their stupid rules again so that you look bad and they look good. The word Pharisee comes from the word separatist. 
Their attitude was to separate from the world, separate from the culture, separate from those sinners, and therefore they got these elaborate laws so that they look good. Everybody else looks silly. And they put heavy burdens and yokes upon the people. That, that was what they were doing in that day. And the question that Jesus asked, is it lawful to heal on a Sabbath or not, turn the table on them. They're in quite a conundrum. You know, the trappers were now trapped. If they say, yes, it's a sin to heal on the Sabbath, they look like a bunch of cold jerks, right? Downright mean, people who refuse to show compassion to others. But if they say, no, it is not lawful, it, it, is, it is okay to heal on the Sabbath, they've just violated their stupid, silly, man-made laws that said you can only heal on the Sabbath if it's life and death. They obviously didn't think the man was going to die anytime soon. Chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus asked them this question. Is it permitted to do good on the Sabbath? Kind of the same question. I mean, the Pharisees have not learned anything from the ministry of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the activity and love and mercy that Jesus shown on the Sabbath. They haven't learned. Because look at verse 4. What was their response? Silence. I hope it was a long silence. Everyone's just kind of looking around. Jesus is like, waiting for your answer. And what I want to notice is that Jesus here is at this dinner on mission. Taking the posture, attitude of a missionary. Jesus is not a drunkard, he's not a glutton, but he's a friend of sinners, and aren't we glad he is? Here we see Jesus even accepting the invitation to those who want to trick him, those who want to dishonor him, those who want to disparage him. And the very fact that Jesus is there sitting at this table shows us that he is just as loving and resolved and, resolved and loving toward self-righteous Pharisees as he is just the flagrant sinners of the, of the society. It's a setup. But Jesus is there. Jesus is loving these people. Pastor, you want to come to dinner? No. <laughs> Way too much fighting going on with you. Like, I, I don't want to go. Jesus like, yeah, all right, let's go. They want to pick a fight. They want to trap, but here he's at the table conversing with them because Jesus loves them. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves his enemies. God is love. And after this awkward silence, <laughs> making clear that they're nothing from what Jesus has been teaching them, he heals the man of dropsy. Notice that. He took him away. He took him, verse 4, and healed him and sent him away. So there, there's two things he's rejoicing about. I mean, the word healed, it means he was completely healed. So think about for that for a moment. Right? The watery fluid dissipated, organs healed, welling disappeared. Dr. Luke saw he's healed. Right? They were well aware of, uh, of, of what they were trying to do, what Jesus was going to do, and yet he's healed. And then look what he says. He sends them off. And you can hear him running out of the house. Get me out of this religious fanatic house. <laughs> you know? So you're healed, you could go. You, you could be dismissed from this dinner. Jesus was well aware of what they were trying to do, to disparage him, to impugn his character, but they also knew that Jesus was compassionate, that Jesus wouldn't just sit there. Jesus would see this man filled with fluid, with dropsy, and he would do what he has always done, 
and that is to have compassion and to heal, regardless of the day. They knew what he would do. Just like in The Godfather, I was thinking this week. Sonny Corleone was set up. Brazzini's men knew. Once he found out Connie was getting assaulted by her boyfriend, he's going to, by the husband, he was going to do something about it. He waited for him right at, the, right, at the, right at the toll booth. I hope you all, if you didn't see the movie, you need to. <laughs> and after Jesus heals him, he sends him away. Another great, great blessing upon him. Then he continues, and I believe in love, verse 5. Which of you, having a son, now no one's saying anything, Jesus heals him, sends him off. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Ouch, right? Jesus just points to the lawyers, points to the Pharisees, their own practice on the Sabbath. Like, what would you do if your son or your oxen was in danger of the Sabbath? Like, would, you, would your son fall off a cliff, fall down deep into a, a, a valley, a, a cold, freezing, with nothing to eat? And you'd be like, sorry, uh, I'll be back tomorrow. No, you wouldn't do that. He's pointing to, look, there's compassion and the rescue and the care of people, even on the day of rest. These legalists have learned nothing. The Sabbath has produced no change. The, 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 the healings on the Sabbath have produced no change. What does God desire for us? To be like Jesus. The King of Kings who was sent on mission. We're called to have mercy and compassion. And reaches the needs of others. It wasn't a day for, for tripping people up. It wasn't a day for trying to catch people in a sin, gain some kind of spiritual merit by keeping the laws. No, it was a day of worship. It was a day of compassion. Even the, law, the Sabbath doesn't change that. Jesus, God in the flesh, the law fulfiller, knows the true purpose of the Sabbath. And this, the, the ridiculous man-made laws reveals that they were motivated, listen, their laws and the way they interpreted and the way they responded to Jesus made it clear that they were motivated more by self-interest than they were about obedience to God. The Sabbath, they have worship and for showing mercy. J.C. Ryle says this, The Sabbath was made for man for his benefit, not for his injury or for his advantage, not for his hurt. The interpretation of God's law respecting the Sabbath was never intended to be strained so far as to interfere with charity, kindness, and the real wants of human nature, end quote. Self-righteous, that when we talk about Pharisees, we talk about these religious conservatives, we're talking about self-righteous people that are legalistic, that, that have these rules that applies to, to everyone, but when it does not seem fit or right in their circumstances, they are quick to change the standard, right? It's quick to change the standard. Leaders in Israel here at this dinner party were, were a bunch, unfortunately, at that moment, tragically far from the kingdom of God. And you can see some of this has to do with Jesus showing these religious leaders, his disciples, all the people that are there, that he is the one who has authority. In him is the power of God. It doesn't dwell in these religious leaders. It dwells in Christ alone. You see, they make these man-made laws so that they can, they can be in with God. But they completely miss the point of the Lord as to love God and to love others. And Jesus is saying, no, I have come to show the way. I have come to 
be the way, the truth, and the life. One of the things I want to point out too before we move forward into the next point is what this miracle does. Family, it is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. Here's a man sick and filled with fluid who was unable to do anything about it. He's trapped in his own sickness and what does Jesus do? He mercifully, lovingly, and graciously heals him of dropsy. He didn't do anything to deserve. He does anything to do it and to, to get healed. But Jesus does it all. Like us, we sit in our condition in sin that leads to death. And Jesus comes along, touches us, gives us new life by the Spirit. It is the work of God. It is all the work of God. So family, are you trying to save yourself, justify yourself? Heal your soul by yourself. Jesus claims about his kingliness and, and his authority that he has exhibited. Verifies his claims that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The door that leads to salvation that is both true and final. He's showing that. He's verified that over and over again. You can't save yourself. Only Jesus can. A humble guest. We turn to the parable. Jesus, again, tells, tells a parable. A parable is something that Jesus wants, Jesus wants to reveal to them, show them their, a spiritual truth. He tells them a story that they would understand and then lays it aside, this, this spiritual truth, so that the one explains the other. That's what a parable does. And the text tells us why he's telling the parable. Look what it says in verse uh, 7. <clears throat> now we told the parable to those who what? Were invited when he noticed how they chose, when he noticed how they chose the place of honor. Okay? So contextually, he's in his home, there's large gatherings. People are supposed to sit in certain places. It was likely a table arranged in a U-shaped formation, host sitting at the center, the honored guests to the left and the right. They were either sitting on cushions or low couches. And again, the best places to sit is you want to be on the left or the right of the host. And the further out you go, the less honor. The closer you are, the more honor. That's the way they, they did it in those days. So I envision, this is, a, this is conjuncture, uh, my thought, when the doors open to the house, there's a mad rush. Who's going to sit next to the, man, the honor, the, the, the ruler of the Pharisees that, that hosting this? Who's going to sit next to him? It's like the doors open up right on, on Black Friday. Everybody just bum rushes in. Or George Costanza. When, it's, when, it, when, it, when there's a fire in the house, he pushes the clown out of the way and he's got to get there. And she's like, you, 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 guys, you guys think you're all that? You guys think you're holier than thou? You wear these fancy robes, you pray in public, and everybody's like, oh, look at you. But that is not how real kingdom people behave. When you are invited, someone to a wedding feast, don't sit in a place of honor. Don't rush in and sit where you think you should go. Let someone more distinguished than you, invited, uh, than you be invited by him and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up. Come up higher. 
Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. You see, humility, Jesus is saying, is the mark of a true follower, of disciple of Christ, is humility. These folks at this dinner gathered, who showed no compassion, were, 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 were filled with what? Pride. Right? That's what it is, pride. And in that pride, they just went and took the seat. It wasn't given to them. They just took it, what they think they should sit, uh, they should sit at this banquet. You know what that's like? We do a lot of weddings here. That's like a distant cousin coming in for a wedding. Place is filling up. And a distant cousin walks down the center and sits right on the first seat. The wedding gets started. And there comes grandma. Everybody loves grandma. She's with her great, great grandson, the only one. She's smiling. Everyone's watching. They get down there, and there you are. And it's like, uh, you can't sit here. You got to sit in the back. Place is full. So you got to get up and walk past everybody. Walk past everybody. And everyone's, and really, what's happening is everyone's saying the same thing. Look at that idiot. <laughs> sit in grandma's seat. I mean, who's he think he is? And let me tell you, honor and shame culture, more important than gaining wealth. And, and to the back, you go. But what if you were a distant cousin and you showed up, church getting full, you see it's crowded, you sit way in the back. Church is crowded, you're in the back, getting ready to start. And someone in the family says, whoa, whoa, whoa what are you doing back there? Come here, we have a place for you up front. And then everybody sees you what? Walking up front. Now they're saying, wow, they must love and respect for they're honoring that person. Kent you, selfishness always reduces the importance of others and enlarges the importance of one's own life. Proverbs 25, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. One last one, C.S. Lewis. The natural life, the natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired, to take advantage of others, to exploit the whole universe, end quote. The attitude of prideful uh, assumes that everything exists for me, to serve me, to benefit me, I'm significant. This parable is all about humility, not humiliation, right? So God's plan is to be humble, but then, if you are not, God will humble you. Now, short little bunny trail, but I, I, when we talk about pride, especially here with, this, with religious leaders here, l- let me tell you, there's a difference between self-centered, self-righteous pride, like these religious leaders, than a sense of, of satisfaction and fulfillment in one's life. A pride that says, I have value and worth. There's a difference between the two. In other words, there's a healthy way to say, look, job well done, I'm proud of you, or a parent, or a teacher, I'm proud of you. Many times I've, I've left this building, and I, I felt, as a lead pastor, seeing all you love one another, and care for one another, serve one another, community group leaders, uh, leading, and, and just, I, I have a sense of pride. Not in a pride look at me, but in a pride look, look at God. But look how people are serving one another. In other words, there's a healthy way of saying it. Even the scripture says that we should build one another up, encourage one another daily. We're not, we're not promoting pride. 
And to have a good sense of, of, of self-worth and value and purpose is important and is justified. If we think we are valueless, we'll live and act in a valueless way. Right? It's a huge problem with addictions and, and um, recovery from codependency relationships. In a book by Ernie Larson and Carol uh, Haggerty, they write this, Fostering self-esteem means taking care of oneself. Often we need to treat ourselves easy, give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, remind ourselves of how far we have come rather than how far we have to go, end quote. So life and success and, and joy and happiness, whether it's school or relationship, depend on, on, a, on a sense of self-worth, of value. But the pride we're talking about here is what Webster calls an inordinate amount of self-esteem. English, Oxford English Dictionary, an unreasonable conceit of superiority, an overwhelming opinion of one's own qualities, end quote. That kind of pride is the natural love for myself, magnified and perverted into the disdain of others. I don't care what other people think or say. I'm, I'm just going to do what I want. It becomes deadly. Especially when it's skewed, when it becomes so inwardly focused. So but the real question then, we have to think through, family, this morning. The real question is not whether or not we should have a sense of worth or value, but how has that worth and value been established? Okay? Are we the determining factor of our worth and our value, or is someone else? The problem that we face with this self-determination, self-actualization, and what... what promoted as self-esteem, is that in order to have this value and self-worth, we have to hold up a mirror of our own reflection and cherish what we see. That's self-worship, that's idolatry. We're capable of turning what we see into our own God, small g. Right? If you want to feel good, just keep telling yourself how good you are. And then all the good that you do and all the good that you are, you just pat yourself on the back and see how great I am. That's self-righteous. That's pride in a bad way. And listen, there is value in what you do, but what you do does not give you value. Nor is your worth derived by anything measuring up to others or anything reaching down. Self-worth, value, satisfaction, and purpose is ultimately connected not, not by what you do, but who we are. Our value is because we are created in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, our worth, our value is because of him. And when we try to get value, we try to get worth, we try to get those things outside of the gospel, outside of our reconciled relationship with God, the person and work of Christ, it becomes idolatry and it always leads to pride in a bad way. And that family is what legalists do, full of pride. They think you have to do what I say, don't do what I see, say, keep the laws, keep the standard, set the pace, and now you have this pathway and access by what you do into, that you can approach God and you can be in a relationship with him. But how do the believers, humble Christians, followers of Christ, how do we approach life, salvation, redemption as a gift? Something we don't deserve? But if I got what I deserve, it'd be wrath for my sin. But when you realize that all of God's precious gifts of salvation and redemption and justification and forgiveness is a gift freely given to us, it's the beginning of humility. Let me tell you what humility is not as well. It's not inferiority. It's not saying, look, I don't deserve it, therefore I'm not getting it, I don't want it. Just look how poor I am and how beaten up I am and, and how terrible I am. That's another form of pride. 
Humility is not becoming a scum of the world, believing you are worthless. Real humility says, I don't deserve the good and the grace of God in my life. I deserve wrath and hell, but here's God's grace. Here's God's mercy. Here's God's kindness. God is good. God is loving. God has blessed me and given me this gift of redemption and a gift of himself freely by his grace. Satisfaction and worth is not connected by what we do, but who we are as his people. Humbly, humility is being so secure. Now listen, humility is being so secure in God's love and of what he thinks of us that we're not drawing attention to ourselves every minute of every day. We give others space to think. We give others space without imposing our agenda on them as as children of God. It's finding our value, our security, our worth and purpose in being loved and forgiven and being created by our God. It's the heart of a servant, right? I call it Christ-esteem rather than self-esteem. Ultimately, our worth and our value is not self-promotion, not looking in the mirror. It's not trying to tell yourself something that may not be true and you know deep in your heart it's not, but rather finding it simply in the forgiveness and the love and the grace and the kindness and the goodness of your creator my creator. Does that make sense? The parable in our text is a call to humility. It's a call to humility, but it's not just about dinner. Look at verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And verse 11 is in the passive voice, meaning the subject is the one being acted upon. In other words, God will humble those who exalt themselves, and God will exalt those who humble themselves. The declaration is making this more just about more, more than just table manners. It's kingdom principle, not just wedding and parties and, and where you sit. The banquet serves as this metaphor for relationship and God's reign, how God's people are supposed to act. And listen, a warning for judgment. You see, the world tells us that we are to elevate ourselves. But Jesus says that if we do, God will bring us down. He will humble our pride. We, we see this all over Scripture throughout Proverbs and the Psalms, even from the fall of Adam to the fall of Jerusalem. It was about pride. And the truth is that people who exalt themselves, who think, look, I'm good enough. I've earned this. I, what I do and what I say and how I respond and how I act and, and my moral standings is good enough to stand before for God. It's my own merit. The final judgment for them, Jesus is saying here, is humiliation, not exaltation. One commentator wrote this. Just as at a wedding feast, this is really good. Just as at a wedding feast, the occupying of seats of honor does not depend on a person's self-assertive attitude, but on the discretion of the host. So also a place of honor in the kingdom of heaven does not depend on self-assertiveness or on a man's opinion of himself, but on the righteous judgment of God, end quote. Therefore, if there's any place at all for us at the eternal banquet of God, it's by the grace of God, who Jesus took the judgment of God upon himself, so he invites us to this banquet. So yes, the kingdom of God ought to be humble, because they're the only people who will be exalted the final judgment who humble themselves before God and receive what God has given to us in the salvation. Those who are completely and totally aware that they are undeserving sinners, but they, they have put and they've continued to put their total trust, their faith and hope and the love and the grace and the kindness 
of Jesus Christ on the basis of his substitutionary death in our place. Peter says what? The, the, the way up is the way down. First Peter 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You want opposition you want grace? I want grace. Right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. J.C. Ryle again. The man who really knows himself and his own heart, the man or woman who really knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and his infinite majesty and, and holiness, who knows Christ at the price at which he was redeemed, that man, woman, will never be a proud man. Ain't that true? The man who really knows himself and his own heart, desperately wicked and sinful, who knows God, infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ, the price that was paid for my redemption will never be a proud person. That's true. That's the gospel. And where do we learn this humility, this, this humble uh, 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 condescension, this, this, this taking the last seat so that God can exalt us? We learn from Jesus, Right? We learn from Jesus himself, God himself, second person of the Trinity, who took the lowliest place, his condescension from glory to earth. That's what the redemption's all about. That's what the Apostle Paul traced for us in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Christ, truly God, second person of the Trinity, yet says in chapter 2, verse 6 of Philippians, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, stepped out of glory, shared in our humanity. Yet lower still, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, how? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So complete was his humility that he was willing to die in the most humiliating of deaths. Painful and shameful death on the cross. And yet, through his humiliation, through his humbleness, through his his, his, uh, work of the cross, the shame and brokenness that he took, he dies and he what? Gives us forgiveness of sin. Dies in our place. But that's not all. Jesus himself receives something. Receives glory for his humiliation, verse 9. Having followed this condescension into humility, we, we trace this exaltation, verse 9. Therefore, God has what? Highly, mega, exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, the God-man, truly God, truly man, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will either bow in humble adoration, praise and worship of his coming or you will bow in, in torment and wrath, but you will I will, everyone will acknowledge who Jesus Christ is. Everyone. From the lowest place to the highest place. Humility and death, exaltation and resurrection. And therefore, when Jesus says, he will humble himself, will be exalted. Or I should say it this way. He is the one that can say that with perfect obedience. Who knows it well more than anyone in the universe. Beaten, bludgeoned, ridiculed, humiliated. Wounds open from being whipped, nailed to a cross, 
The very God who infused blood into human veins poured out his blood for you and me. The creator of life has passed into death and the enemy of life has been defeated and he rises victorious. Three days later, God exalts him so that you and I can experience everlasting life. The cost, the humble cost to himself was his own life. Jesus came to earth to reveal to us the truth about who God is and about our sin and what was necessary. That we cannot come into access, into relationship. Uh, we cannot have a relationship with a holy God because of our sin. And yet, Jesus extends grace, mercy, and kindness. Ponder that for the minute. Ponder the gospel for a moment. And with that in mind, ask ourselves this question. You can talk about it in community groups. What need is there for pride? I've been transformed. I've been changed by the gospel. I'm no longer enslaved by sin of which I was. I could sympathize with others. I could, I could serve others who are in need. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me to give me wisdom. I'm secured in the gospel, cherished by God. I have every blessing, Ephesians tells us, in Christ. Why would I need to be prideful? I have all I need. I've been treasured above all. I, I, am, I, I can't be any more treasured, I should say, than I am now. Zephaniah talks about singing over me. I'm, God delights in me because of Christ. I've been forgiven of my sin. I've been given much. I have been exalted much. I am seated with Christ in the heavenlies. How could I be prideful? All that is a gift. As the band comes up, let me ask you this question, and then we'll sing. Have you surrendered in humble obedience to Christ? Have you bowed your knee before the King of kings and Lord of lords? Have you humbly accepted the fact that I can't save myself, that I am a sinner, I, I, I do things I shouldn't do, and I don't, think, I don't do things that I should do? I am not holy and perfect. I have no right into the presence of a holy God. But Jesus Christ is my sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the one who died in my place. He's the one who took the penalty. He's the one who bore the wrath. He's the one who imputed to me his righteousness so that I could be forgiven and stand before a holy God. Have you humbly accepted that reality? And let me ask you this. Maybe you have. And maybe you're a follower of Christ this morning. Are you struggling with pride? Let, let's humbly repent together. That we can be confident in the gospel, confident in who we are, confident in what Christ has done, confident in his love and grace, humble, recognizing it's a gift of grace. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this narrative. Lord Jesus, thank you for your teaching that you have given to us as we read your word today. We know it came from your own mouth to us. I don't think any of us, Lord, can say we don't have issues of pride. So this is a good reminder to us, Lord, to help us remain confident in the gospel and the gospel alone. Let the gospel fuel our, our efforts to serve and love others and not look down on others and not... Um, yeah, not look down on others, but, but look at others as you would look at them and serve, care, and love them. And Father, maybe there's someone here that has never humbled themselves before you and accepted the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, by your spirit, you'd reveal to them their sin, but also the beauty and glory of Christ's forgiveness. Your mercy is more. 
Help us to respond now as we sing, not to words on a screen, but to you who are present. In Jesus' good name, amen.